Hey, you're listening to the Creative Pep Talk Podcast. Yes, this is the right podcast, and I am your host, Andy J. Pizza. But this is a special episode. Today on the show, we have Jamie Drake. That's who you're listening to right now. Aren't you just swept away in, in the whimsy of it? Um, let's get through some stuff. So we help you build a thriving creative practice. You can keep up to date with Creative Pep Talk by following me on Instagram at Andy J Pizza. Uh, let's get into today's episode. really needed to rehaul my website. I was talking to some web people, looking around, and I got intrigued by Squarespace's new fluid engine, partially because it just sounds cool, but also because it allows you to drag and resize and layer up anything you can imagine. I dove in, rebuilt my site. It's the most me site that I've ever had. I just absolutely love it. Launched it. Got such a great response. Some industry illustration and designy peers even reached out and was like, hey, who coded this thing, man? I'm like, y'all, I did it by myself. No coding with Squarespace's new Fluid Engine. I told him like, you should go check it out. You're gonna be surprised with what you can do. And I built this thing before Squarespace reached out to sponsor the show. So I was like, boom, easy peasy. I was gonna tell you about this new site anyway. Go check it out, antijpizza.com if you wanna see what I did with it. If you want to try it yourself, make a site that's totally you, where you can build a portfolio, sell content and courses and all kinds of other stuff, head to squarespace.com for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain with promo code PEPTALK, all one word, all uppercase. This episode is supported by In The Making, an original podcast brought to you by Adobe Express, the all-in-one content creation app included in your Creative Cloud membership. If you are trying to boost the YouTube, TikTok, Reels content side of what you're doing, one episode of In The Making that I think will be super useful to you is their episode with John Ushai. I think John's method for including his audience in the process is really inspiring. And if you want to hear about that and more about leveling up your game in the creator economy, just search In The Making in your podcast player to listen. Many thanks to In The Making and Adobe Express for their support. Okay, this is a super special episode with a brilliant creator, Jamie Drake. Uh, Jamie Drake, we, Sophie and I, we listen to Spotify playlists every once in a while, and uh, one of these songs came on while Sophie was listening, and she was just swept away to the point where she went and searched it out and was listening to the album, and I came in one day, and she was listening to it, and I was like, what the heck is that? Uh, and, uh, and we just have been 
you know, obsessed with it all year and um, so much so that I decided to reach out, cross my fingers, see if I could get Jamie on the show. We did. And then we had a huge, deep conversation that was so meaningful. And I think you are going to love this. And uh, I'm glad you get a little taste of her music. um, But you're going to listen to her process of how she got to this deeply personal album that was just a a real creative breakthrough. And so we go through all kinds of um, personal creative journey stuff in this. And it's very personal. Super grateful to Jamie for spending so much time and sharing so much of her story. It is, um, I feel like a lot of us, a lot of you are going to have some parallels here and, and some maybe some personal breakthroughs just listening to how she got to this place to be ready to make that album. You should go check out The Art of Living. It is a, a little live EP that are that's on all streaming platforms now that she just dropped. And she was also on NPR's World Cafe um, just in May. And it's really great. I'll put both of those in the show notes. You can go check them out. Hope you totally love this conversation as much as I did. I've been thinking about it since, and um, I don't think it's the last time you're going to hear Jamie Drake on this show either, um, just for a bunch of reasons. All right, let's get into it. Here is Jamie Drake. be okay. First of all, Jamie, thank you so much for doing this. It means a ton. Oh, man. Thank you. Gosh, I'm honored. So I have a billion questions. I, not literally. I only wrote down <laughs> six, but I have tons and tons of things uh, that I want to ask you about. I'm a huge, huge fan of your music. But before we get to that, I read that mm-hmm. you were raised by hippies. <laughs> is that accurate <laughs> yeah i mean yeah i, I guess suppose like they're they're sort of like wannabe hippies my right. mom was a bit young for the whole movement i would say she's probably like 13 when the whole thing was happening so she's she's definitely got that vibe but i would say i mean more so my parents were just they were just like not literally gypsies but yeah they just moved, we moved all the time because they just wanted to move all the time. <laughs> mm. Well, I, I ask you that because I'm not a hippie by uh, any means, but my wife and I are artists and we have three kids, but mm. our parents are pretty much as normal as it gets. And so sometimes I feel kind of like a hippie and I'm like, man, is this going to be okay for kids? So I was going to ask you, was it okay that that lifestyle? <laughs> Were you all right with it? Um, you know, I think moving, I went to nine different elementary schools before the fifth Yikes. grade. Wow. Um, I don't recommend that. That's a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I really don't recommend it. I mean, you you know, as it is with everything, it's a part, it, it became a part of my journey, but 
um, and has made me like really adaptable and um, I can travel and feel at home anywhere. Um, mm. But in the, in the same respect, just the idea of feeling like I have a home base um, that's taken me a lot of time to kind of figure out as, as, as an adult, I'd say, um, I lived in, in LA for 11 years before I realized that there was this foreign feeling of like, Oh, this is my home Mm. because I moved around so much when I was little, but you know, I think for me, it was really hard because, you know, I was really kind of quiet and introverted and it was hard to make friends like always being the new girl. But I'm sure there's other there's other aspects of being sort of a quote unquote hippie parent that are perfectly wonderful for yeah. a child's upbringing. <laughs> I I also we moved around a ton. I would say about every three years, uh, we moved to a different place. We went to Western New York and all the way to England and all over the place. And I feel mm. like for me, even now to this day, I feel like every three years I get a weird subconscious itch. And I and I it's hard. Mm-hmm. It's been hard for me to. Uh, I think it's it changed the way that I treat friends. I feel like there's always a seasonal it's something I've tried mm. to reconcile. I don't know where there's this thing of like I will go all in while I'm here, we are close as can be. Mm. but there's this other part of me that's like, and I could just disappear at any second and then we'll never see each other again. Um, yeah do you have totally some of that? yeah, I understand that you know, like I think moving around so much when I was younger made me. I just, I remember when we moved again, I was in the fourth grade and I remember thinking, cause my best friend at the time um, asked for my address cause she wanted to be pen pals. And I remember thinking at that age, um, we're never going to write each other. We're not going to keep in touch because yeah. that had happened so many times before then. Um, so, you know, it's so sad, you know, in a way to like, as a, to think about the little kid self, of my little kid self, how I had to like basically learn how to detach from people or mm-hmm. maybe not ever really learn how to comfortably um, bond with another person because I always felt like I was going to be leaving them anyway. So, um, yeah. I think uh, the other thing I've been kind of uh, thinking through with all this, you know, movement over the years is it kind of reminds me of, I think it's, I'm not a philosopher by any means, but I think it's Plato's cave idea. I feel like there's this, if the cave is your surroundings and your culture and just what everybody accepts around you, there's this thing. I am really grateful for, you know, leaving these little caves and moving around and and seeing through what people accept as identity. That's really just their culture. And I do feel like that, Mm. that detachment, Mm -hmm. even though I feel like you lose some belonging, I am grateful for, you know, bursting through that. And I feel like creatively it's been a positive thing. Yeah. There's definitely the positives of, um, learning that the world is like a big, beautiful place and adapting in each new circumstance you find yourself yeah um yeah I think that's great I think I feel like I I have the ability to understand people on all different levels of or you know the whole spectrum of like backgrounds and sort of where they come from yeah maybe maybe because I have such a 
a wide experience myself. Yeah. And so one of the reasons why I wanted to have, well, the first reason I wanted to have you on the podcast is my wife and I are just like crazy huge fans of your record. We've played it a billion times and it's still, it's, it <laughs> seriously, and it hasn't, it has not even close to burn out on me yet. So it's, it's still going like, I'm, you know what I mean? You get obsessed with something and you just like burn through it. And it, oh, yeah. there's so much depth to the, uh, to the arrangements and, and the lyrics. And it's just amazing. But the second reason I wanted to have you on here is because it's so, it sounds like a record of somebody wrestling with creativity. It sounds like the struggle of putting a record out there. And it's all, there's so many themes in the record mm. that we talk about on this show. Cause I, this show is all about helping people build a thriving creative practice. And mm. you are wrestling with so much of the stuff that we talk about every week. And I wondered if, uh, if you could just speak to it, was this record an emotional, spiritual, creative struggle to create? Is that accurate? Yeah. I mean, I, I think this record is a culmination of a whole decade of figuring out who I was as, as an artist. And, um, and I feel like a lot of the songs that I wrote that went on this record some of them are written in times where I was like struggling with different things like um, loss of the, like the faith that I had been raised with or, you know, loss of different relationships and things. And also just the loss to the loss of like certain aspects of your identity, because as you evolve, you're constantly, you know, sort of dying and resurrecting, you know, if you think yeah. of um, just, how we evolve as humans. So, um, but the journey to getting to this record, which I felt um, is a defining sort of debut record for me, was, you know, I put out my first solo album in 2010. And getting to that album, you know, like I didn't make that until I was 30. Yeah. And in my 20s, I had been married and then I got a divorce. And so even doing music as a career was a struggle because it was something that I was sort of held back from, um, but also felt like in some respects that I wanted to protect it. And writing and sharing music was very much a personal thing for me for a long time. Um, but making that, the divorce was sort of a, ca a catalyst for me to like getting out there. So um, from the, the, from the first album, you know, I was a part of three different quote unquote side projects. Mm. The first one was called, uh, burning branches. We made a whole record, um, as a group, we like wrote a song a day and then recorded it in the studio Ooh. over the course of several weeks. And, uh, and that was a beautiful project, but it was also not destined to be released into the world, like unbeknownst to me. Mm. Um, so that was a learning experience. I just wanted to pause you real quick because that's extremely interesting. One of the things that uh, I think a lot about is an exploratory project versus a strategic project and and how mm. that, you know, I think a lot about how art is not just always self-expression, but also self-excavation, like the tool to find this stuff. And, it, and I love that project sounds like 
just like you said, you learned a ton uh, through it. It sounds like mm-hmm. such an interesting exploration and a, the, these very clear, were the constraints set up to where we're going to write a song and record it in the same, uh, what did you say, same day? What, yeah. <laughs> yeah. What? How did that happen? What's that all about? So that came about because I knew a couple of studio musicians here in LA and they had all known each other for a long time. Most of them were in Alanis Morissette's touring band at the time. What? I love yeah. Alanis Morissette. <laughs> yeah. And they, and they were kind of like, a lot of them had their own studios and they would, they would get hired to do commercial work and stuff that they didn't feel passionate about. Right. So sure. they had a whole band kind of put together and then they had a singer named Yost Zweggers, whom one of them had met. He's like kind of a famous singer from, I think the Netherlands. I don't remember anymore. It's been a long time. Yeah. But, but they also wanted to find like a female singer to be involved with this. And I was sort of this X factor. Um, cause it was between me and another girl, but she lived mm. in New York. And so it just kind of made sense. And I said, yes, because I thought it'd be an interesting project to try out. And, um, you know, in order to kind of do the project, we all agreed that we would just split publishing six ways, which in retrospect is sort of like sad because me and the other main like leader of the band were the ones that wrote all of the songs basically. Yeah. That's kind of what ended up happening. But because I was still very, young and hungry and excited and super just packed with creativity, ready to just burst at the seams. Like I didn't even stop to think of whether it was a a good idea or not. I just went for it. And, Mm -hmm. and it, the creativity and everything that flowed in the music that came out of that project was just gorgeous. And, um, and it, I didn't go into it thinking it was just going to be an exploratory thing. I went into it believing that this would be a band that we actually pursued. But when the time came to turn it into that, it was, it became really obvious that everyone else was like, no, I can't really do that. I'm like, you know, I play in the Alanis Morissette's band or I do, you know what I mean? Yeah. So for me, it was just this really heartbreaking experience and something that was, it was like a, oh, wow. Okay. This was like an example of suffering. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I had the choice to either continue moving moving in the direction of joy which was creating music um or i i could you know decide to pack up my things and and stop doing that pursuit and i and i kept moving forward because you know i wasn't going to let uh you know like a negative experience steal whatever future things I could do, right? What do you feel like you took away from that experience? I got to experience just total freedom and excitement and joy um, in creating music with, with other really amazing musicians, um, recording that music. And, you know, I got to experience for the first time that yes, I'm in the right place. I should be an artist. I should be doing this. I'm a great writer. I'm a great singer. Um, and, um, 
I mean, just that whole experience, it was, it was wonderful. The, you know, the, it not turning into a band and everything was something I had to like, you know, cry over a bunch and then just accept that, you know, and I got over it, you know, eventually. (laughs) Um, But yeah, I, I learned a lot about working with others and being in the studio and being open to the process and really just like co-writing with another person um, and kind of leading the charge in that too. It showed me that I have a lot of really strong musical uh, skills and a strong voice when it comes to being a writer. And yeah, it gave me a lot of confidence in things that have always come natural to me, but I never really had an experience like that with other musicians that were basically like listening to my ideas and saying, yes, this is great. Yeah. You know, so that was, that was awesome. Yeah. That, that makes so much sense. I feel like one of the things that, uh, has been on my mind lately is this idea of so much of finding your gift is, finding what everybody around you already knows. Mm. And there's something about going and, you know, when I met an illustrator for the first time who was a pro, I was in college and I could see like the way they were looking at my work and I could see myself in this person. There's just this weird limit, this self limit that kind of was released. And I thought, you know what? Like, I can do this. I'm actually like bringing different things to the table that they're respecting. And it sounds, there's just this huge thing that happens when you surround, when you're around people of high caliber and you find your people and you get, yeah, you get this confidence and it seems like that's kind of what was going on, right? Yeah, definitely. And it's been, you know, every, every step along the way when I've been able to interact with people who are high caliber and to, to see that they, are sort of nodding, nodding back in my direction. Like, yeah, you've got, yeah. you've got something special. Like that always feels great. <laughs> yes. And it's always yeah. sort of like a, yeah, I'm going and I'm moving in the right direction. Like it's not just me like thinking this, it's other people see it too. And it's, it's always nice to have that mirrored back to you. Yeah. It's really key. There's something I feel I'm always trying to bottle up, uh, not necessarily, you know, cockiness or anything, but confidence in such a way, because I feel like it is the, the headspace of play. And there's something so distracting about the, when your brain is in the fear mode or it's in the self doubt mode, it's, it's constantly pulling you out of play. Mm. And I feel like it's those moments you bottle them up and you're like, no, they said, they, they said I was, I had something and you there's, I did a talk recently that was online just recently. Mm. And, uh, I could go back and look at the comments in real time. And there was something so powerful of not, not that the comment, the comments were good, but not the, it wasn't how good the comments were. It was more like seeing the things that I thought were good being confirmed like, oh yeah, I was onto something. I'm not just crazy and I'm not delusional about, you know, what I'm bringing to the table. Mm -hmm. If it's hitting at the right moments and I'm seeing it in real time, that feedback is, you know, filling that confidence bottle up and I try to like soak up those things. So I I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. 
It's great. So, okay. So you were, you were in this band. I want to make sure that, uh, I don't want to go down a, a, a random rabbit trail. <laughs> so I want to make sure that we get onto the, the right stuff, but I'm so, uh, I feel like there are so many parallels from your journey to getting to this new record that so many creative people have experienced. So many of my listeners are going to relate to this stuff. Mm -hmm. And you talking about, you know, a divorce as a catalyst and, you know, that record that you released it, 10 years ago mm -hmm. to getting to this place here. I just want to like, I want to zero in on what were the key yeses that you said, you know, the things that you committed to, the decisions you made that led to this. Uh, I, I mean, I don't know what it's like on your end, but to me, it seems like this is like a breakout record and it's it's something super special to your creative journey. Mm -hmm. And I also, I, I just want to highlight that this was just from that record to this record is 10 years. And mm -hmm. then you had this whole marriage where you weren't putting this stuff out there that... To, and that's all that stuff I'm sensing in the record. That's what my mm. question was getting at. It's like, this thing was a journey to get to this. And then once this record, it just feels like it exploded yeah. in this. It's very triumphant and and, and moving. So I don't yeah. know. I don't exactly what thread to pull at because there's not enough information online about you for me to like get <laughs> yeah. to the, to get to the like, wow, you know, where are these key decisions? You know, what are the things that sustain you over this amount of time? Like, yeah, I, I want to make sure that we get to what you know were the keys. Mm. Yeah, I hear you. I'm like, okay, which thread do we pull? I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> we got tons of time though, too. Let's just explore it. But I, I, yeah, that's kind of my heart for, yeah, all, this whole thing. I guess there's different things I could speak to, like the trajectory. Like I could talk about the last 10 years or I can talk about my entire life. Like it just. Let's just go through the journey and we'll, <laughs> and if we have to do part two and you let me do that one <laughs> Uh, in a year or something, we'll do it. But let's, it's such a, I feel like the journey is such a huge part of this uh, record and you've kind of affirmed that. So let's yeah. just, let's go back as far as we need to. Okay. Um, <laughs> well, um, I, I suppose, you know, in the beginning, I, in the beginning of my life, I, yeah. music has always been this language that I understood but it was, it wasn't necessarily being mirrored back to me that, I don't know, I just think my parents, like my dad was a singer songwriter actually, but also my parents divorced when I was really young and um, he was an alcoholic and all that kind of stuff. So, hmm. so the, at a really early age, there was just a lot of trauma and uh, music for me was the thing that sustained me. Um, music, I would always just hear melodies that would enter my head and, and it was an escape for me. Um, and because we were really poor, I didn't really take, um, like any music lessons or anything like that. And we were always moving around as well. So, um, those were deterrents to my early development. Um, but I also think that because I was sort of in my own quiet space where music was this 
safe thing for me to express and help me process my own emotions that for a long time I've, and even into my twenties, because I still, um, I still used music as a way to process my emotions and to, um, work through whatever it was that I was working through. I suppose also a big, a big through line in my story was, um, because of, because of the environment I grew up in, um, I was really drawn to, so like music and also this idea of like a heavenly father, like my grandparents took me to church with them and, and I felt safe there. Um, and so I naturally gravitated towards, um, like having like a relationship with God. And, um, that was something that also helped me to feel safe. One of my last questions on here is about how the intersection of spirituality and creativity, because that's a huge thing for me. And it's been, you know, um, definitely there's a lot of parallels in our story. So my my mom left when I was little and she was the illustrator. She, she never did it professionally, but that was her thing. Wow. Um, so I, and she was an addict and all these things. So all of my listeners are like, we know there's like, tell her Andy, it's, it's the same. <laughs> uh, so I'll just say it, even though, you know, this isn't about me. Um, but so there's, there's a lot of parallels there. And then, you know, the, your spiritual journey, just from what I've read online is there's a lot of parallels there as well. And, and it's a, it's been a, a you know, a, up, uh, you know, a roller coaster of a thing and the way yeah. but it always is a through line in my creativity. It's oh, there's something, you know, even on just a, a basic mystic level there, it's always been a part of everything that I make. Um, so yeah, I'm just like affirming you, like talk about that as much as you want. And, uh, <laughs> <Thank> you. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, cause I know that's always, it's always, it's something actually like over time I've become a lot more comfortable, like exploring that with people on the show and, and, yeah. and exploring it through, through my side of stuff too. Um, and then I like what you said also about working through, th- working through your emotions with songs. So this idea of like. Linda Berry, that she's like a famous comic artist, and she says like everybody thinks that when they go make a piece of work that it's a statement, and she thinks of it often more as asking a question or asking herself a question. Mm-hmm. So is that kind of what you mean by working through emotions and such with with music? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, sometimes I don't really know what I feel about something until. Like it's oh, it's almost like my body needs some time to fully process it, and then it kind of all comes through in a song, and then it's like now I know how I feel about this, you know. Um, 
and it's 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 kind of similar to when I like I've gone in and out of my life of like being a heavy journaler and it's just writing out what I'm thinking or feeling has always really helped me understand where exactly it is that I am and I know that not all human beings are really interested in and knowing what's going on with themselves all the time. Um, but I'm, I've always been very hyper-conscious and analytical of, of just my own journey. Yeah. And I think that it's, it can really be such, uh, it's such a mystical, wonderful thing that we exist and we get to um, have this moment in time where, we we are alive and we can create things and say things in the world we can go back to uh you you were going through uh your grandparents faith and and yeah. how that ended up being something you adopted at that time yeah yeah so you know um at like i think the age of 6 um i just felt i felt really safe when I went to church with my grandparents and I mean, it's just a very simple thing. It's like, okay, this is the place I feel safe. And God is, you know, like God is my, God's my heavenly father and my protector and all this stuff. And, and, and I think because we were constantly moving and there was always sort of, um, I never knew it was going to happen in my house. I mean, I remember my first fear being, how am I going to take care of myself? Because I felt like I had to take care of my, my mom, um, because she was being, you know, physically beaten up by my dad. And, um, and when we got out of that situation, even too, my mom remarried my stepdad who ended up being worse in some ways, because he was more of, uh, he was mentally and emotionally abusive to like everyone in my family. So, you know, having my, having, having faith and also having music as this like personal, almost like way for me to journal and process my own feelings. Those were, those were elements that really helped me to survive. Um, I mean, I think a lot of people have had really, myself included later on have had a lot of difficulty with like the church and with religion. There's like a lot of, there's a lot of stuff involved in that whole culture that's super unhealthy. And I even recently realized that I have religious trauma, <laughs> you know, but the, the actual connection, the, that I know without a doubt that I have had with this unseen like presence, this God this mystical um, element, you know, that has been a, this like a through line in my life as well. That has just, you know, as I've struggled and been frustrated with organized religion, like my entire life, I've never really felt like I belonged in the church. And yet, and yet I felt like, but I know 
like the God that they're talking about. So how is this not working? I don't yeah. understand. Man, I, I relate so hard to that. That's, that's, <laughs> <laughs> that's a, you know, I, I, same, I have the, the same experience. Never feel like I belonged in church or those communities at, per se. But then my personal experience is such a huge thing for me. Even today, it's it's maybe more uh, vibrant and important to me today. Where now I'm, I listen to records or I watch TV, and I'm watching these artists uh, make their work, and I'm so uh, you know these people I'm a huge fan of, and I feel this weird bubbling up of it, it, the word for it is evangelism. But what I'm evangelizing is something I don't really even know other than I wish, I hope that they have that connection to this unseen thing because it's such a, it's so life-giving and so important to my creativity and and it's how I get to the the best stuff. Um, so right. yeah, I, to I totally, to totally relate to all that. Yeah. I mean, I absolutely, I I'm definitely in that same place. And I went through a kind of a big deconstruction around 2011. And I had this experience of like loss of loss of faith and like, sort of like, I felt like I had this death of this relationship with God. And yeah. that was a really dark time for me uh, because it wasn't something that I had chosen necessarily. It was almost like I woke up one day and I didn't know how to speak that language anymore. Mm -hmm. um, and so that was really, that was a really sad time. That's actually also when I wrote the song Blue and the song OLOL, which are both about loss of faith and those are on my record. Um, yeah. Yeah, because it felt like this Christ person that I had been raised with this idea, you know, I felt like he, he became like this phantom. <laughs> I call him a phantom of the yeah. daylight, you know? Um, mm. but, um, yeah, it's been, it's been an interesting, like crazy roller coaster of a journey because, you know, I, at the end of like that four year period, I was just like talking to a, one of my closest, oldest friends and I was just like, do you think I can just decide to have faith again? And because in my, in my experience, it wasn't like I, I lost it on purpose or I was so mad that I was like, oh, I'm going to just go be an atheist now. Um, or I'm going to go study other religions. It was like something that felt like it had been taken away from me. And he's like, mm -hmm. yeah, I think you can just decide to do that. <laughs> so I just decided to have faith again. And I was like, okay, this is the premise of my faith right now. Like me literally yeah. talking to God and saying, I am coming to you with like the tiniest mustard seed of faith, right? Like I literally am just believing maybe Jesus is a placebo. And if that's the mm. placebo I need to take in order to live a life that's filled with joy, peace, and like purpose, then I'm going to take that placebo. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> Yes, I, I I know exactly what you're saying. Yes, 
<laughs> I don't want, here's the thing. It's so, uh, uh, I don't want to keep saying me too, but I had, <laughs> I had a very similar experience when I, about five, six years ago, yeah. I had the same thing. I don't know what, I have no idea how this is a common experience, but I had that same thing. If I'd seen so many people lose their faith because they, you know, had read a book or they, you know, they, uh, they, they decided that they wanted different things or whatever it was, but I had a very similar, it was just gone. It was like that, that wow. whole thing is just gone. But it was the kind of thing where I wanted it back. I wanted the parts of it yeah. that were so life-giving and so, you know, made my life have a narrative thread and, and all that kind of stuff. And so I, yeah, I had, I had kind of, I, I know what you're saying is what I'm trying to say. Um, <laughs> but, uh, so you can, let's go back a little bit okay. to, you said that, you know, your mom remarried, that was, uh, uh, uh you know, a rocky thing as well. Yeah. How do you go from becoming an adult and getting married to that first day, the, the first record that you made? What does that period look like? Well, I think one thing I'd like to uh, mention is yeah. that in the fifth grade, well, in the fourth grade, my mom remarried. We moved, and then in the fifth grade, we moved to Sturgis, Michigan and settled there. And I was there through high school. So mm. one of the only positive things of having my stepdad was that he made us live in the same area for an extended period of time, which yeah. brought yeah. brought some stability and I was grateful for. But uh yeah, I I was able to experience like I was able to experience like immediately I made like a best friend and we were really good friends from the fifth grade through like middle school. Those were really great years. Um home life was pretty terrible, always afraid. Um and then I lost this friendship. She kind of like decided to be on a different track for high school. And, and for me, it was like, I, it was so scary for me to make friends because I never learned how, like I, I moved around so much when I was like developing those skills as a little kid. So I just sort of became this loner. But um, one thing that really was a highlight and sort of saved my life at the time was having the opportunity to, um, be in musical theater productions in high school. Um, when I was, I started doing it as a freshman and then as a sophomore, I, you know, was given one of the lead roles. Um, and that was such a huge thing for me. I got to play Miss Adelaide in this musical called Guys and Dolls. And, and that allowed me to like have this whole part of my personality that had been squashed because of my stepdad having that part of me was just able to flow out naturally in an environment that was safe. And, and it was sort of like, um, oh, this is just a part of me. It's like a character I'm playing. So that felt safe. So re mm. rediscovering parts of my, this performance aspect of like, I love being on stage. I had no idea. I love it so much. Um, and having that kind of rev up in high school, and, I, and then I started learning how to write my own songs when I was 17, when my friend taught me how to play guitar. And so those two things were sort of, those were my things that I loved when I was a teenager. Um, and I ended up going to a musical theater school in New York City uh, called the American 
uh, American Musical and Dramatic Academy. This makes so much sense because your record is so theatrical and cinematic. <laughs> totally. All, this is true. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's crazy. It all, it all makes sense now. Yeah. That right? Oh, yeah. man. Um, so I went to musical theater school and then I ended up dropping out after the first year because I just got so, um, I just felt so discouraged. I mean, going to New York City after yeah. being like a big fish in a tiny little pond and also mm. not having been given the tools to like, you know, of like confidence and like me being mirrored back that I'm okay. You know, <laughs> no one yeah. was giving me those tools. So I, yeah. you know, I just, I ended up getting married to like the first Christian guy that was cute that came around and like was interested in me, even though yeah. my intuition was like, I was like annoyed by his vibe, you know, it was, <laughs> I like immediately uh, didn't yeah. like him. And yet I felt like I was yeah. supposed to because there, man, I relate to go ahead. I was just going to say, I, I was just telling my, I was telling my wife, uh, I, I'm not annoyed by her vibe, actually, my <laughs> intuition and all that, that worked out really well. But I just told her that I think there's something about growing up in church, that when I meet somebody that I don't, I viscerally don't like them, I almost feel like I'd learned that I have to now learn to love them. So like, like uh, I will, I, in my past, I would start, I, if I would meet someone, I'm like, oh my gosh, I hate this person. <laughs> uh, there's some subconscious thing that would be like, now you must be their best friend. Right. Like, <laughs> it's like this weird, that yeah, is so a weird, weird thing. But, yeah. That is a weird byproduct for sure. Yes. So, um, he was very just kind of overwhelmed. He had sort of an overwhelming personality. And honestly, mm. I think in retrospect, he was just trying too hard, but it took him a long time to realize that, I guess. But mm. um, we basically should have never gotten married, but we did. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and because we were like raised in the church and had Christian guilt and all this stuff, it was like, um, well, let's like we basically didn't deal with any of our problems for the first five years of our marriage. And then, um, once we finally did, we separated for a while and then got back together. And so all in all the marriage, we like tried to fight for this thing and it lasted eight years and in our twenties. And I mean, I think I learned in that process that me trying to be what I thought I was supposed to be, by following like these rules and like, you know, be a virgin when you get married, like crazy stuff like that, you know, like, (laughs) because the only, because the only like direction I was getting in my life was from the church. And I've trusted that even though a lot of it scared the crap out of me, but I didn't want to admit that because I wanted to belong to this system that gave me a sense of a sense of identity and also it was the religion that I was raised with and my family and my grandparents were like you know they were like Pentecostal so it was like you know 
kind of scary sort of like if you don't speak in tongues then you're going you're not really a christian you know <laughs> that kind yeah, of stuff yeah. where it's like <laughs> you know trying to weed through all of those messages when you're a kid and you don't know who you are and no one's told you that you're okay the way you are and like yes you should be listening to your intuition because that is you know i've come to I've come to sort of feel that my intuition is almost one and the same as like that voice, that yeah. Holy Spirit, you know, is God, yes. God leading me in this direction? Like, you know, when you grow up in the church, you're taught that don't listen to your desires because they're evil and your body's evil and like yeah. everything about you is evil and <laughs> yeah so like listening to my intuition and believing that i shouldn't marry this person seemed like the wrong answer and yet i yeah. fully remember my intuition i.e the voice of god i guess yeah saying yeah. to me don't don't do this like you're gonna be okay you don't need to marry this person but I think that same fear that I had when I was really little, which was, how am I going to take care of myself, was just so overwhelmed with the idea of being this adult in New York City who didn't have, like, didn't have the support and maybe wasn't as talented as I thought or hoped I was. Um, and so if I can't make it in a big way somehow, then I'm just going to hide my head in the sand. And, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe what I'm supposed to be doing is to be like a Christian wife and to like support my husband's dreams and that whole thing. Mm -hmm. And that's it. That's what I ended up doing. And I think a lot of the reason I got married is because I was terrified to be an adult. I was terrified to like figure out how to be an adult in the world in a world that was so overwhelming and I had no answers. And I had this person that was there telling me, I'm going to take care of you and I love you and blah, 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 you know, and he was five years older than me. So it seemed like he knew what he was talking about. Ha. Huh. <laughs> <laughs> Man, I, that, uh, if it's like, uh, I'm sure there are so many people listening to this that, that is just uh, is like therapy uh, to, to there. I feel like so many people have lived that and must experience it. Even down to, you know, I feel uh, this is part of my deconstruction was realizing that there's a real uh, control brainwashing kind of thing that goes along with convincing people they can't trust themselves uh, and only, you know what I mean? Like yeah. that is a, and I've, you know, come to a similar uh, place of that deeper, deep voice, whether I don't really know what to call it, but that that's always what I see as the the voice of the divine. And, and when you are so convinced that yourself is untrustworthy, it's really hard to get in touch with that voice and listen to it and act on it. Um, and I, yeah, I, I, I totally, I get what you're saying there. Yeah, because it's weird. I mean, I feel like in that moment that I was sitting there, the voice of church culture was, yeah. was louder than, yes. than the actual voice 
of God. And that is really messed up. <laughs> it is so messed up. It's also, you know, something you said earlier, it reminds me of like, this is the, you know, you saying like, uh, you know, you have all these issues with this community, the things of belonging, all kinds of different, you know, qualms with being, you know, 100% sold out to this thing. And yet this is where you find that divine connection. And I think this is one of the trickiest the uh, territories this is where it gets really dicey as if you have these encounters with god uh and through people that are broken and are doing things with that or manipulating it like and and that's where the church culture or the the religious culture around that stuff um it gets very that's where the deconstruction i think actually has to happen is you've got to separate all that stuff out yeah i mean i i recently um i mean we're kind of tracking in my 20s right now but if we yeah. fast forward to this past year i mean literally this past christmas um i read some some books that totally blew this whole thing open for me even more mm. and um the first one is called you are your own by Janie lee finch and mm. i've listened to that book probably four or five times now but she breaks all of that stuff down and actually sort of um, uncovers the fact that so many people actually are suffering from religious trauma and yeah. it's a newer thing that I think people are realizing. And it's like, yeah, it's traumatic to hear that a place called hell exists when you're six years old and, uh, yeah. you know, <laughs> and it's traumatic to be told that you're going to go there if you don't agree with this message and like, Oh, and also you're, favorite aunt's gonna go there for sure because she's you know what I mean like we're like worrying and having anxiety around all of that I just think is just kind of terrible <laughs> So one of the the one of the big threads of this show, I make a lot of comparisons of the creative journey to the hero's journey, and this idea of Carl Jung talks about individuation of of becoming who you're here to become. Yes, and I find it so it's emotional to me, and it's scary, and it's enlightening to think that you had at least you know two people. You said your stepdad had kind of. Uh, repressed things about who you were that you found in theater. And then I don't know exactly if you would uh, speak about it the same way with your husband, but it did seem like you had mentioned after the divorce, you felt free to explore your music and whatever. Um, but it's so, it's very, it's heavy and it's insightful 
for everybody out there to realize that there are people in your life that are actively or or inadvertently or passively um, obstacles in your unfolding. And I, Oof, yeah, and it's so it's it can be it's so awful, especially if they're people that are in your immediate family and you grow up in an environment where you're you're just automatically being squashed. You know, they're just yeah. like I my mom and my stepdad had three little kids and my three little sisters, half sisters, and um started doing that when I was like ten. So, you know, up until that point I was I had been the youngest. It was my brother and I and then my stepdad and mom got together and had my sisters and so it was sort of like this experience for me of being replaced not only replaced, but sort of dethroned from my position yeah. of being the youngest. <laughs> um, yeah. And then my brother was pretty passive and would often like, at that point, he wasn't in the house a lot because he and my stepdad didn't get along either. So I kind of got stuck at home sort of helping take care of my sister. So I sort of, I, I sort of ended up becoming like this servant in my own house, sort of like a Cinderella story and yeah. feeling like I had to earn my keep because the love that the love, and it wasn't even love, but just the vibe that I felt from my stepdad was sort of like, you need to earn your keep, you know, because you're not really my kid. And so that's pretty awful. Like being a stepkid and having a parent that's like a step parent that's um, doesn't know how to, treat you know a child that doesn't belong to theirs let alone their own children um and um and yeah I I felt very isolated and in fear and I also felt ignored I was I felt very neglected you know I felt like I was invisible I sort of became invisible when my sisters came into the picture um but I also need. I also felt like I needed to shield them from some of the things that were happening and stuff. So I would entertain them at our house. Like if my parents were fighting, I would just put on a little show for them and stuff, and sort of shield them from that experience. Um, so yeah, I mean, I basically learned in the environment I grew up in. I learned that sort of being subservient to others was my role and that I I remember feeling like that it was like selfish for me to want something for myself. Um, and I think that comes from like my traumatic childhood, but also I think some of that comes from like the Christian upbringing because suffering is such a glorified aspect of that faith. Um, and it can become very destructive if you're somebody who's living in an environment that's already abusive. <laughs> you know what yeah. I mean? Yeah. So yeah. it's like abuse on top of abuse. So no wonder, you know, I ended up marrying somebody who um, years after our divorce, I realized was definitely like a clinical narcissist and hmm. just, I mean, I helped him build his career and, we went through some counseling after the whole five-year mark, got back together, moved to LA when we had been together for seven years. And at that point, we had done enough counseling to get to a place where we really could support each other for who we were. 
after mm-hmm. we read this book, I think his his uh, therapist recommended called we'd have a great relationship if it weren't for you. And it's, <laughs> and I mean, it's basically just about finding the co- the commonalities within your relationship instead of trying to always look for the things that make you different and therefore make the other person wrong in some way. So we were able to really like find this really good place where we be sort of became friends again, but the things that were wrong with our marriage that had been always been wrong just became very glaring in the next year or so. And once I started feeling like I could go out on my own and start pursuing my music in a small way, um, our paths just, I knew it would happen and I just had felt it. Our paths just went in the opposite direction because he wasn't giving me the same support that I had given him. <laughs> for so long, you know? Um, and you know, then we decided to get a divorce and for, for a couple of years, it didn't quite hit me that I had been, it's weird. The subtleties of abuse that happen when you're in a relationship with someone who's like a narcissist or someone who is maybe gaslighting you all the time or somebody. That's kind of the, from what the little I know, one of the core traits of the narcissist is their ability to hide the abuse. Yeah. I mean, he was always able to turn things around on me. And um, I mean, even if my feelings were hurt, he would end up making me feel bad that I hurt his feelings because my feelings were hurt. Like yeah. <laughs> it was yeah. that ridiculous. It was like, yeah. but we were in our twenties and it was like, ugh, it was so, it was so much. It was yeah. so much. I, I, I have a, uh, a kind of a love-hate relationship with uh, personality tests and, and things like the Enneagram. But right. I think one thing I hear you talking about that's really fascinating is the the Enneagram is kind of like, I think it's more of like a persona test. And they talk about like the part of your personality you developed to be loved. And it remind, it sounds so, there's this pattern between, it, sound, it reminds me of the Enneagram 2, which is the helper, hmm. and they believe that they have to help to be loved. And it seemed like that's something you learned from your stepdad, and you carried it on to your next relationship. I'm not your therapist, but I just think <laughs> it's just, it's I see that pattern, and I think a lot of people, whether they're uh, Christian, uh, were brought up in the Christian faith or not, but especially there, a lot of uh, women probably this is a common thing that I'm I'm sure so many, we have a huge uh, base of women listeners to this. And I'm sure that that whole putting off your journey and, and, and raising somebody up and and seeing your role as being subservient to their success. I know so many people uh, listening will relate to that. Well, you know, it wasn't until recently that I was actually able to see that decision that I made to be with him um, as me being afraid to step into my own life. And that's sort of a humbling 
that's a pretty humbling thing to Damn. admit to yourself, especially when you you chose to be with somebody who actually didn't see you or love you. Um, but I, you know, I felt safe in that environment because I think because I grew up in an abusive environment, I also didn't feel safe actually being truly loved by someone. And, mm. you know, I had a couple of boyfriends before I got married who truly loved me. And I was just, I felt so grossed out by it because <laughs> it just didn't feel right. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. But, uh, and it's, it's weird to look back on myself in that time and, and, and to just be like, Oh man, I, I'm so sorry you went through that. That's such a bummer. Um, um, I'm very happy that I've sort of come through that. Um, but, um, the Enneagram thing you brought up, I think that's interesting because, you know, that was probably, that's probably true back then. Um, I took that test for the first time, I think like about four years ago. And at the time I came up as a six and then really? a couple years later and I, a couple years later, and even now I've consistently come up as a four, but yeah. I do feel like it has it shifts every time I take the test. And I think that's because in the Enneagram is, um, it also leaves room for you to evolve as a person, which I think is interesting. Yeah, I agree. And I, I get a lot of great stuff out of there. I just feel like there's so much, anytime someone brings it up, I always brace myself for <laughs> whatever's going to cut. You know what I mean? I'm always careful. I'm like, Oh gosh, what's happening. Um, but yeah, I come up as a four. I think a lot of our listeners are fours, um, but not all of them. Uh, and I just want to highlight another thing that you said, where you said choosing that marriage was a really a refusal to, of a call of your own call. There yes. was a you entered into that as an escape. Mm -hmm. And I think it's an interesting thing because even though you're not owning the abuse and you're not owning, you, you know, his choices, mm -hmm. you're learning from mm -hmm. how the, the part, the parts that you had to do with entering that and, and refusing your own journey and trying to escape your own uh, path. Um, and I think it's just interesting to highlight because I, I feel like uh, I've done that and I think a lot of people have probably experienced that and it's good to recognize where, oh, I'm, I'm participating in this. Mm -hmm. I agree. I mean, I mean, and, and I think also there were some good things about the marriage as well. You know, like he and I both sort of, I think we both came from sort of abusive situations, maybe him not as much, but I think we both... I mean, I, I feel like I needed, I needed to feel like I had some time in a situation where I, I don't know, I, I learned how to be an adult, sort of, mm -hmm. or I, mm -hmm. I felt, I felt like I, I was covered in some way in that relationship in, in some way where I didn't feel like I received that from my parents so a, yeah. a part of that childlike att attention and growth that maybe didn't have the chance to happen in my actual childhood, um, there was something within me that felt like I was going to get that through that relationship. While at the same time, I was saying no to, you know, a call. Yeah. yeah. And, and I don't believe marrying him was the best choice at all. 
but I can also see it as a part of my journey and how it has, you know, made, it's a part of who I am today. And the divorce itself, I think I needed a very strong catalyst to really get my attention and for me to wake up and see that I had a call, Mm -hmm. you know, because it had just been beaten out of me for so long that it felt weird for me to choose something for myself without feeling some kind of weird guilt about that. And whether that's, you know, I think those are all things like unhealthy, like things I believed because whatever was modeled to me as a kid and then what was modeled to me in the church and what was modeled to me as just being a girl too. Um, Yeah. A girl in the church. It's, you know, people aren't, weren't telling girls that they could be leaders or that they could be strong-willed or that they could have opinions. Like that wasn't something that I was being taught. And so I think, yeah, you know, marrying my ex a lot of that had to do with making a choice that I I was supposed to choose and I was supposed to want. (laughs) So bizarre. Yeah. And I did try to pursue music when I was married to him, but you know, he was very um, strangely overbearing and um, competitive, even though he wasn't a musician. It was a kind of a weird experience. Yeah. I was just going to ask about how did the, how did the yes to that call then end up happening in terms, it seemed like it happened in a bigger way with the separation. And then as you're like trying to piece things back together, you moved to LA and how, can you just, how did the actual pursuit really begin to that led you here? Well, we were separated for nine months. And then when we got back together, we decided we were going to moved to LA proper. We had been living in Thousand Oaks, which is like 30 minutes outside of LA and pretty depressing when you're in your twenties and you had previously lived in the East Village of New York City. Um, Mm. (laughs) So I think after we had received counseling and we got back together, a major catalyst then was, uh, well, okay, so we moved to LA and then some friends of ours had some uh, friends that owned this incredible chateau in the south of France. And they're like, we're going to go there for a couple of weeks. You guys should just come out and stay. It's, you know, it could be here for free. And so, um, for, so for maybe six months or so, we were like, yeah, we're going to do this thing in October. It's going to be awesome. In my mind, I was like, this is going to save our marriage. You know, somehow going on this European vacation is going to, you know, make us just fall in love and we're going to have like the spark that we never had, you know? (laughs) And we get there and, uh, you know, we're like a day, like a day into our trip there and everything's the same. And I think for me, it was like, I needed to go across the world. I needed to go to the other side of the world with my husband at the time to realize like, yeah, this is never going to work. Like, it's not working in the most romantic place I've ever been in my life, you know, so it's never going to work. Which, you know, he had been saying 
every time we would have an argument, he would say something like, see, this is why I don't think we're, this is going to work out. <laughs> Which was like, I was always the person that was like, no, I was like fighting for it. I was like, it has to work. We can't get a divorce. It's not an option, you know. But, you know, it was a combination of going to uh, the south of France. And also at the time, I was reading Twilight. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Which I is which is like sort of embarrassing to admit, but a friend of mine made me read it with her. And when I was reading that book, I was like, yeah, you know what? When I was in high school, which wasn't that long ago, boys liked me and wanted to make out with me and wanted to like laugh at my jokes. Um, and I was like, I haven't felt that with my own husband since we've been together. Um, this is never going to work. So we we came back we you know we decided to get a divorce while we were on this two week vacation um which was super depressing um <laughs> yeah but in the midst of that i was just sort of like all right well i'm going to start imagining what my my life is going to look like now and i immediately was like i want to make a record before i turn 30 i have to make that happen so I just started making plans to make my first record. And um, I didn't mention this before, but my dad, um, who I had said was a, a songwriter, but never pursued it and everything, he actually uh, passed away when I was 23 um, of lung cancer. And I found out that he was going to die like just a couple of months before he passed away. Um, and I hadn't had a relationship with him. Like I hadn't really even seen him since I was in the first grade. So it felt like this weird, surreal, like thing because I had wanted to have that relationship with my dad, but he was just too sick and was so sad. And then he passed away. And part of, part of what really helped me envision what I wanted for myself was, um, feeling like I was carrying this torch to sort of continue his dream because I felt like the dream that he had 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 also been implanted in me and he had never had the opportunity to really pursue it. And um, so I kind of just like came out of this divorce like a cannon. Like I was yeah. so alive. I was the most alive I'd ever felt you know, maybe since I was like a kid goofing off and like, you know, playing with my cousin and like making up little radio shows and commercials and things. Um, mm. And I, yeah, I just, I started making my record like a couple months after we got back from our divorce vacation. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, and then it came out was it 2008? It's really, it's like weird because it feels like so long ago now. But, and I, I told myself like, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to make a record before I turn 30. And if that's all I do, then I've done more than my father. And that is, that's a pretty good marker for me to hit. Um, and so I guess, you know, after I made the first record, I was like, I'm going to keep doing this. Um, because this is what brings me joy. And, and, you know, for me, like 
I think a lot of people go into the arts feeling like they need to make money. And yeah, it's great if you can get to that place, if you can figure out how to turn sort of like your own natural voice into something that you can monetize and people will pay you and appreciate your work. Um, But I think the road to getting to that place there's a lot of suffering involved, you know? Uh, but for me, I, I suppose I experienced so much depression and suffering during those years of being married, um, to like the wrong person and, and feeling once again, that I was being overshadowed. That was like, I was able to look at that marriage as a gift in retrospect, because without the gift of knowing how depressed I would be without being what I'm supposed to be in the world, without doing music, uh, I may never have actually tried to do it. I want to just say something about what you said. I go around, I do a lot of public speaking. It's like a big part of uh, my practice. And I, one of the things I talk about is I really wanted to make a career at illustration because I watched my mom kind of be uh, a deadbeat and she didn't, she could never hold a job and she never, uh, could provide. And I also knew from the small amount of work experience that I'd had working at a movie theater and, and, uh, working at Subway in college, I knew (laughs) that like having a normal job was going to be really hard for me. And yet I wanted to be, I wanted to be a dad and I wanted to be a good dad, whatever that means. And so I really like wanted to fast forward to making money in the only way that I thought I was going to be able to, which was with creativity. And I, in the public speaking that I do, I talk about how it was, I wanted to take the warp whistle from Super Mario three and just skip all the levels of the work that you're talking about now of actually finding myself, finding my voice, you know, putting in all the stuff that really matters before you ever make a dime on it. And I just, I love what you said because I think to me, and I'm actually getting ready to uh, put out a class that's much more exploratory creativity, not strategic, not nothing to do with your, your career, your practice or whatever, mm-hmm. because I think that is the foundation. If you can get to a place where you're in that purity. And I ha- I had I'd had some, you know, I was strategic in some of the moves that I made right out of college. And I got, I had a book uh, go viral and it was, it kind of had this really quick burnout. And then I was back at square one and I had to face the facts that I've got to look inside, figure out what the internal mechanism of wanting to create is, get really pure about why I want to do it. And it wasn't until I did that, that I really started the journey. And, uh, yeah, Mm. I, I think you're so right there. Yeah. I think for me, part of it was like, I will create because it produces joy. And I, I, I had experienced so much suffering, you know, for like the first 30 years of my life. I mean, I know there was some good stuff in there too, but yeah, uh, I think I needed to do it to survive and also to survive as who I am, which was creating and, um, and, and experiencing joy from that. And, and I guess, you know, like I, 
I think Elizabeth Gilbert talks about this quite a bit too, is just like, don't ask your art to, you know, make money for you. It kind of puts too much yeah. pressure on it. And mm. I didn't even, I didn't even go to that place, I guess, in the beginning, because I just really, I didn't want to contaminate my message and just the joy that I was receiving from that. But of course, I wanted to eventually get to a place where I could make a living in some way, you know? There's a, yeah, there's like a, there's a seasonal thing of realizing this season isn't for turning a profit for that. This yeah. is a season for digging in. And I think, you know, you said you wanted to create because it produces joy. And I think that all creatives feel this alchemy of creativity. And I think we get it wrong sometimes because it is interesting. As an illustrator, I have often thought, man, how crazy is it that I get to turn a piece of paper into money? Like I, I take a piece of paper, I make an illustration for a magazine, and then it it turns into money. And that's a really interesting and seduce, you know, wow. seductive uh, kind of alchemy. But yeah. the kind of alchemy that you're talking about is I can make this song and it produces joy in somebody else. And that, I think falling in love with that first is such a solid foundation for your practice. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think firstly, it produced joy in my, in myself. True. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. Um, even and, even and better. Which was like, you know, after having realized I, wow, I was really depressed in this marriage that whole time. And now, now I can just be myself like that's, wow, that's amazing. Um, mm. I mean, I think that a lot of artistic people. Um, I think, I think a lot of people so, sort of go into it and they're sort of like, after a couple of years, they were like, well, this isn't working. So I'm just going to do something else. Back and in. I suppose, I mean, if, if your existence, like, like if you want to make a lot of money sort of right away, like being a professional artist probably isn't for you, <laughs> you know, unless you, unless you, you know, have some really. You've gone in the wrong business. Yeah. For that. You're in the wrong yeah. business. But yeah, for me, I mean, I'm really glad that I've, I've sort of moved past that stage of things where um, there, there was for, for a long time, it was like, okay, I'm bartending and, uh, pretending to be a bartender basically and which is what I had yeah. to do for a while <laughs> you're like back at theater this is your character I'm a bartender yeah now. exactly like I had yeah. heard that Andy Kaufman and had like worked at a restaurant um as a uh oh what's the term when they a busser like he was a yeah. busser or something during during the time when he was like a professional and I just, that brought me a lot of joy to think about. I was like, yeah, I'm just like Andy Kaufman, you know? I'm yeah, just... that's amazing. <laughs> but um, I love that. We got to your first record. I I would like to explore that to where we are now. Okay, so first record was 2010 or 2008. I don't remember, actually. And uh, yeah. <laughs> and I I came out and I immediately just sort of hated it because it's sort of like writing your first script or something. You're like, ah, oh, mm -hmm. 
the shitty first draft is yeah what yeah. It's called. yeah and that yeah. was pretty disappointing even though a lot of people like loved it it, it also didn't like go viral or anything like yeah, that like right. um i also interestingly enough i well not interestingly enough but looking back on this time period is funny to me because another lesson i learned was how to spend money um because mm. i spent most of my divorce settlement on that record because I didn't realize, mm. you know, I was like a kid when I got married. So, and my husband had been taking care of all of the bills, even though I still worked like almost full time. Um, he was the one that kind of like did the finances and stuff. So I had never learned how to pay bills or do any of that stuff as an adult. So here yeah. I was, and I was like 28 or whatever, just, you know, I spent like 17 grand on a record. And I mean, that's not that much, but as an independent artist, it's a ton of money. Yeah. And, oh, yeah. and, uh, and then it was like a couple of years later, I was like, Oh my God, I spent all of that money on this record. And the record wasn't as amazing as I was, hoped it would be. And I had felt sort of duped by the producer because he was from like the Christian world too. And so it was like, um, I don't know if you ever listened to that band Sonic Flood. <laughs> I don't. <laughs> it sounds familiar, but I can't play. Like that. a Christian worship band, and he was in that band, and I was like, I was a fan of them when I was a teenager. So having him produce my record at the time was like, oh, this is cool. Later yeah, on, I was right. like, wow, he totally took advantage of the situation. Right. <laughs> he knew I was getting a divorce and all of that. Anyway. Yeah. Um, so after the he burning branches settlement money. thing, <laughs> well, I also think he, the record industry had changed and he had been used to getting like huge budgets for mm. things that were ridiculous. But anyway, right. um, so after the burning branches thing that I did, that I told you about um, after yeah. that experience, experiment, so to speak, I ended up meeting this guitar player at a random restaurant gig that I played um I think at the end of 2011 he showed up at the show and he was kind of shy and he came up to me and he was like I really like your music and you know if you ever or if you're looking for a guitar player like I'd love to play with you and I was like oh that's so cool like most guys in the music industry don't really come up to girls and talk to them like that you know like it's my in my experience it's been more of a well if she's as good as me then I'm just I'm going to ignore her <laughs> or something like that because I don't want my yeah. ego to be bruised right. um either that or they just want you to be like a sex object or something um yeah so I was like really impressed by that and actually had put out into the universe that I wanted to start a band because after that burning branches thing imploded, I was like, I really would like, I had this vision for, um, for this record and the sound that I really wanted to hear. And this was back in like 2011 and that vision that I had ended up being everything's fine. And that record didn't come out for years and years. Um, so part of getting to that place was meeting my 
meeting this guitarist. So we started working together in 2012. And then we started writing together. And eventually we made our first EP for a band that we kind of had put together. And in my mind, I was like, yeah, let's see how this goes. Like, let's, let's write together. See how, see how that goes. You know, I, in my mind, I was like, I still want to be a solo artist, but I was in this place where I was like letting myself be malleable, letting myself do different experience, different facets of um, the different sort of songwriting characters and voices that I could sort of dive into. And, you know, so that project is called Nobel and AJ Manette and I co-wrote and co-produced it. And, and he was the guitarist. He was the guitarist. Yes. Yeah. Um, he was the guitarist and AJ, AJ and I, so AJ and I made that record and, and put it out in 2014. And, um, that was the beginning of our sort of working relationship. And, you know, then I, then I ended up kind of falling, accidentally falling into this Americana trio called Dear Lemon Trees. And so I was pretty busy for a few years. Like I had like all these side projects and I was still trying to write as a solo artist. And, and, but, but my main thing was just like, I am constantly creating, I'm constantly doing music. I'm always in the studio or I'm playing a performance with this trio and those were a hectic couple of years. And I think part of the reason it took like four years for us to make my solo album is because I was also in this trio and the trio was taking up quite a bit of my energy and time. Um, so then Dear Lemon Trees splits up and we split up in the summer of 2017, I think. I think, or maybe it was 18. I don't remember, but by the time we split up, it was like this conscious choice that I finally was ready to choose myself. And, you know, I, there was just a lot of tumultuous stuff happening, stress and anxiety involved with that trio that I was just able to really be like, you know what? Like, I feel like I could probably keep this group together because I ended up sort of being the glue. Mm in that circumstance, but I was able to recognize like every time I've had to be the glue in a situation, I end up being crapped on myself. Like yeah, I end up losing my own power because I'm dispersing it out to others and I'm choosing myself, you know, and I made a conscious decision to choose myself and it wasn't it was like two or three months later that I had a show at the Echo and um, I had an opportunity to invite different people out to it. And I invited this woman out that I'd only met once and she had a company called The Bluegrass Situation. And my, my, my music's not bluegrass, but you know, I figured it can't hurt to have an editorial person come out to the show and because they present shows and stuff like that too. Well, it turned out that she was in a place where she was really, she'd always wanted to be like an artist manager. So, um, I mean, two months after the, the trio breaks up, I have a show and I meet somebody who wants to manage me immediately. And 
I can tell you, like at this point, I was like, I've been doing this independently for like eight years at that point, and it's tiring. And it's, you know, I'd gotten to this place where I was like realizing, like I can only do so much by myself, you know. Yeah. And um, and it wasn't by myself. Like AJ's been an amazing collaborator, um, but it was one of those like sort of mystical moments where everything all the bells bells were going off and everything was right and finally it was like the right timing and also my record yeah. was pretty much done at that point so yeah i think that was almost 2 years ago I'll for heaven's sake say I know this is, we've been going at this for a while, but mm. I don't want to reverse all the way back. But one thing that, uh, as I'm hearing this story and there's a, there's just, uh, everything that led up to you finally being in a place to choose yourself and make this record that, that you wanted to make, I'm going back to, I'm putting all those pieces together in my mind and I'm thinking about when you first moved to New York and it's really hard and you're feeling like maybe I'm not as talented as I thought I was and you're up against all the trials of trying to, you try to say yes to the call and then you end up hiding in or taking, uh, you know, coverage in, in this marriage and, and refusing it for a while. When you get back on the other side, are the same trials there the second time round? It sounds like, I mean, you put a lot more time and energy and investment. Uh, was there just a, was it a deeper determined yes that got you through all those trials? Does, is that question clear enough? Like a deeper determined yes that got me through to saying yes to like me as a solo artist. Is that what you mean? Yeah, because I'm thinking about, you know, you spend some time in New York and you have this, uh, all of this difficulty in terms of, I'm guessing, you know, why you end up feeling like maybe I'm not as talented as I thought I was and why you end up being scared of, I don't know if I can do this by myself and maybe I'll just be a Christian wife. Like <laughs> that, yeah. that, uh, that you end up saying no. So you end up refusing the call and, mm, and getting yeah. married and, and, and hiding away from that. But then I'm wondering on the other side, when you start making music again after the divorce, mm-hmm. What is it? Because then from that time to this record coming out, there is this, it's a lot of time and energy, a lot of yes energy Mm -hmm. that carries you from that divorce to this moment where the bells are going off, so to speak, and it's working. Yeah. And I'm just wondering, you know, 
uh, do you feel like the trials were the same as mm-hmm. when you went to New York and you were different? Mm-hmm. Or does that make sense? I think so. Uh, let me think. I had sort of felt when I started working with AJ, it started off with him wanting to help me with my music. But, um, you know, I think I sort of felt like who is, who who actually really wants to do that? Like, you must probably <laughs> want to write together or do something. And I mean, I really, I really felt like he was such a valuable asset that I think I had the fear that if I didn't sort of be a part of a project that he, that would make him really want to be involved with it, then I might lose that collaborative partner that, you know, you know, so I think hmm. part of going into being a part of this Nobel project was me being afraid of losing um, this really great uh, artistic collaborator and I and I feel like you know looking back on those fears I think they're completely unfounded because Mm. you know after we stopped doing the Nobel stuff like he immediately was you know supportive of being a part of my solo album so those were years that you know I might have I could have maybe just been spending making my my solo album but but I do think that that creation of making that first record with him um was super valuable too because I mean we learned how to make a record together and how to work together and we basically developed our own production sound and Mm -hmm. I think my solo album, if it would have happened instead of the Nobel album, that my solo record wouldn't be as special as it is because yeah. it wouldn't have had all of that, those years of information. Um, the depth of that, you know, exploration. And I think, yeah. you know, there's another, I, I'm a big believer in like, nothing gets wasted and yeah. you have to, you know, until you learn the lesson, you haven't learned the lesson, but I, that's a really interesting thing of, uh, you say yes. And then in the narrative structure, the allies show up and then it's almost like on your own hero's journey, he, he shows up and you're like, uh, to help you. And you're like, well, what's your journey? Let me like you know, yeah. let me flip it back on that. And it's almost, it's again, it's like the, the third pass of learning not to be the helper and yeah. learning to be the, the, you know, to own your own path. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. And I ended up doing the same thing in the, the Americana trio too. Um, mm. I, I felt like, strangely in that group I think I had felt like the glue and yet I also felt like the least appreciated person (laughs) for some reason Mm. and I think it partly maybe is just because um I was used to being like a helper type you know um yeah and uh when you're used to kind of being in that role and then you throw yourself into that role, 
it's almost like you're throwing yourself under the bus at some point. You have to like mm -hmm. learn to step out into your own life and not uh, searching for the. Uh, <laughs> yeah, not but you're paused every time you say yes to being the helper. You paused on your own thing. Yeah, every time I've said yes to being the helper, I have paused my own thing. But I can also see how being a part of those projects really informed my process as well. So I don't yeah. feel like uh, any, I don't feel like a sense of regret or anything. Sure. It's all, yeah, it was all part of the process of creating this thing. Yeah. You know, I feel, I've often said that I feel like I, in the process of figuring out what the sound of this record was and figuring out all the, you know, the production orchestrations and yeah, throughout that whole process, I think uh, everything that I learned from these other projects all informed um, sort of a matured um, perspective and, and voice that I was able to bring to the table because of the different experiences I'd had and, and the things that I'd learned from each project, you know. Like, I mean, the, the trio was a really... In, in some ways, it really felt like, I felt like I was made to be smaller, but the, and, but, and yet as a group, it felt like we really had, you know, during this short amount of time that we were together, we were sort of like this power trio. And uh, mm. it was exciting to see our like local, just the city, like people were really excited about the three of us getting together and joining forces. And so mm. a lot of people would show up to the shows and, you know, all, each of us were sort of like, wow, this doesn't happen at a solo show. Like, this is exciting. So I was able to kind of take that confidence boost into my solo career and just know that, that that's possible. That's totally possible. Yeah. And there's probably all this momentum and connections and all these things that were made possible by that group as well. Yeah, there was definitely some momentum that group gave us each of us like some momentum for our solo stuff. And yeah, I mean, I met my manager because that group had played like a show that she put on or something. So yeah, there's just like a lot of through lines. So this was, uh, first of all, thank you for going through this uh, and unpacking it. There's something extreme. I'm sure you can imagine a record that you are obsessed with, that it's just <laughs> uh, a freak. It's so, uh, so fun and satisfying to, to dig into the depths of it. And it makes, that's the story of getting to this record it's so congruent there's so, it's i it makes so much sense uh <laughs> what's happening on the record in terms of the that, i do think you know because as as we found your work it was like on spotify through a playlist and we see this one record and it has this like you said the production depth and this strong voice and there is it's so that was why it was so exciting to be able to talk through all this stuff with you because i'm like where did this drop out of the ether how did this, <laughs> this, this fully formed like 
there's so many layers in this perspective and like the, the, you know, the, the wisdom and the, and the truth and the lyrics, like I'm like, so this has just been so uh, satisfying to go through all the stuff that compiled to get to this release. And so first of all, thanks. And then second of all, how has, uh, how has the release of this record and, and all of that been for you? Thank you. Gosh, it feels great. Uh, it's like, well, if we can get everyone else in the world to feel that way, that would feel even greater, you know? Um, yeah, I'm, I, yeah, I'm sure. I'd give it some time. I know you've had some time doing this, but I feel like it's it's one of those records where it's just uh, – it's, uh, for, and I, you know, I'm a fan, but it feels <laughs> undeniable. It's just about more people tasting it. Yeah. And I, uh, so uh, yeah, but I, um, Thanks. yeah, but yeah, has it felt, did it feel putting it out there? Was it scary? Was it satisfying oh, at the end of I that mean, process? It, it, it's been super satisfying. Um, and to experience it from the, to experience it as as who I am today, having been an independent musician for so many years, but now to have a team that, you know, that's been a whole interesting process for me, just experiencing having a team, having having a label that absolutely loves the record and having um, management and like an agent and, and all of this, you know, people like everyone that's been on board has um, really gotten the music from the get go. And it's been really great to, to feel that support from a team and not just be like doing this by myself, wondering if anyone's hearing it. And mm. um, so that, that's been really wonderful. There've been some great surprises, like, you know, having Spotify, be an early on supporter um that was a very mystical experience i mean one of the first things that my manager had me do was in at the beginning of 2017 i went to folk alliance conference in kansas city and mm. and i played you know a few showcases and and there was one of those sh one of those showcases it was like it felt dewy and like magical and mm in that room, you know, they're, they have them in these hotel rooms and stuff. In that one room out of that one show came, uh, my agent came interest from Americana Fest, which I didn't end up doing later anyway, because I'm not an Americana artist, but also there came interest from different publicists. And, um, I got, uh, my lawyer from that meeting and, that's also where there was a rep representative from Spotify and she was like, this was in February. So she was like, when is this music coming out? I want to put it on playlists, all of that. So, uh. um, so when my first single came out in August of two, two, I guess it was 2018 in August of 2018, everything's fine. When that single came out, um, we were kind of crossing our fingers wondering if Spotify was going to still be in our camp. <laughs> yeah. And it took a couple days, but I remember waking up um, and looking at my Spotify for artists app and seeing 
that there had been 6,000 streams in the last 24 hours. And for me at the time, I was just like, oh my God, 6,000 streams? Like, do you realize that my, my, my record I put out in like my very first record had been on Spotify for like a decade. And I think the most streams it had ever gotten was 10,000, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So having that happen overnight was like, what? (laughs) (laughs) Like, it was like, I felt like I was living in a dream and to have it, you know, I think everything's fine. It's like at 3 million something streams now. And yeah. And, and that, and, and like having people all over the world streaming your music and reaching out to you through Facebook or Instagram or whatever, and telling you that your music is, you know, keep keeping them alive and giving them hope in a time that they're experiencing like a lot of sorrow. And like, that seems to be a really big theme with this music and that, that part is so, that makes me feel like, oh my God, this is, this music is touching people. Even if I'm not getting like, well, no one's getting big tours right now. Right. But, (laughs) you know, I was like, even if I'm not being asked to, you know, open for Father John Misty, it's okay because this random person in Mongolia is like, you know, having their best, best day ever because they're listening to my record. And, Having messages like that come through, you know, trickle through, it's, it's been like really, really amazing. And, um, but um, also just the label that I've been on, they've been super supportive. And even as I'm wanting to put out some live recordings and put out like, you know, some other um, bare bones type singles in the coming months, because we're like doing some remote recording stuff, they want to support what I'm doing. and. Um, and so that, that I feel really grateful to have their support still. And, um, you know, but the record came out in September and I, um, you know, I think, I think I was, I was hoping that I would get a little more attention just in the terms of like, this record's amazing. We should have her open for this big artist and give her more sure. opportunities and stuff like that. And those are things that is just sort of like, I don't know, those, those things just seem sort of like chance opportunities or um, those are things that you can't really make happen. Control. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, yeah. and no one is ever, no one ever says, I love my agent. My agent's amazing. <laughs> yeah. You know, like, <laughs> yeah. Not to mention paradigm now is in like complete shambles. Uh, but no, and no one's touring. So touring is touring can't really be the focus right now. So I guess right now I'm sort of thinking I had like some really great tours. I got to do some runs with like JS Andara and I, you know, Sean Colvin, which was like kind of crazy. It's like, Oh my God, she was like huge when I was in high school. Mm. Um, and, um, I've, I've sort of become you know, a part of the Watkins family hour at Largo here in LA and Sean and Sarah Watkins are like, you know, they're, they've become like good friends. And it also feels like super cool to just know that, you know, some artists that have been around the block for a long time, like can see that, that, that they believe in me and they believe in the record I put out and, and yeah. 
And I just think it's sort of, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if my career will continue to be sort of a slow burn and I have yeah. to be okay with that <laughs> yeah. because that's always what my life has been, I think. And, um, and I've always, I've always been taken care of and I'm grateful for that. You know, I can't, but I, but I also, you know, there's a, there's a shadow side of myself, maybe my ego or something that's sort of like, I does I deserve to, to really be seen by more people and I deserve this and that. And I think that that's sort of a constant voice as, as an artist where it's sort of like, you have to figure out how to like love your work and believe in it and believe like that. Yes, this is worthy of being um, appreciated. And, and then there's part of that too, where you just kind of have to, you have to hold it in your hand, like with an open hand. It's like yeah. anything else, you know, like you you hold it with an open ham, hand and you're sort of like, this is an offering that I'm now passing to the rest of the world and they get to experience this work through their own perspective. And um, there's sort of a letting go of that, you know, and yeah. And I'll, along with that comes like my hand is open to, to share this. And my hand is also open to receive from it. And Mm -hmm. it's a constant, I think it's a constant sort of battle or maybe not battle. Sometimes it's a battle and a struggle and sometimes it's just a way of being, you know, and I think I do best when it just flows out of me as a way of being and I can enjoy the present moment and not be worried about, you know, what is, how well is this record going to do? Like, Oh, you know, we're probably, what are the Grammys going to look like? There's no way I'm going to be not nominated for the Grammys in 2020. (laughs) Like, come on. (laughs) Like, especially (laughs) with this pandemic, you know? Yeah. So, well, I'm, uh, both selfishly and selflessly really grateful for the slow burn of your career uh, selfishly because part of it means y- you are accessible for being on this podcast and not talk and you know <laughs> instead of talking to Jimmy Fallon which I'm sure is in your future but I get to I, I'm I'm grateful I get to be here and, and chat with you through it um, for the place that you're in right now but then selflessly you know I, if there's one through line of this podcast of something I'm trying to encourage people, uh, encourage creative people with is that the true stuff, that the the great stuff is the result of a personal journey. Mm-hmm. And I think that your uh, gracious sharing of your path is such an example that really flies in the face of the toxic creative mythology of the overnight success. And I feel I heard an analogy the other day of 
you know, what you, you want to be that slow burn, that you don't want to be the piece of paper that catches on fire and is up in flames really fast, burns bright, and then it's gone. Yeah. You want to be that bonfire, you know, campfire log that just, it takes a long time to get moving. But once those embers are glowing, it's, you know, yeah. it's, it's yeah. lit up for a long time. And so I love, I'm so thankful that you've shared this journey because I think it's a testament to um, the, the best creative stuff the the truest stuff that comes from the human spirit it's the result of a journey and i don't think there's any other way to get there so yeah thank you so much for sharing all that you know i would like to add one more thing that i think is really important to the the journey that i've been on and you know when i was 19 living in new york city um uh before I met my future husband, I actually had a manager and he was take he took me around to like some Christian labels, of course, which I, mm-hmm. I did not feel like, it's like, I don't write Christian music. I just write music, you know, yeah. um, <laughs> yeah. which one of my songs have converted. Yeah. Uh, that's yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, um, <laughs> Also, something that was a struggle at the time was writing music in a time when I felt like I was writing like uh, mature music, right? And what was popular, though, was Britney Spears and Christina Aguilera. And Mm. from the beginning of my musical journey, I kind of adopted this you know, lie slash feel sorry for myself story, which was, oh, I'm too old. (laughs) You know? Yes. I'm so glad. I wanted you to speak to this. Yes. That's so good. When I was 19, I literally (laughs) thought I was too old because Christina Aguilera and Britney Spears were popular. And I was like, they're like 14 and they're singing pop music. No one's going to want to hear a 19 year old folk singer. So I think something that people can kind of get hung up on is this, like, you know, the age thing, obviously. Everyone, everyone does. Um, And especially, if not especially women. And I think that I needed, I don't know, that, that marriage wasn't right for me. But what it did do for me was it made me really see how I'd been wasting the time that I did have and Mm. and also that I was really depressed not being me in the world and when I came out of that I was still in my late 20s so I didn't really feel the age thing again until maybe 32 and by that time I had been working really hard maybe for four years or something just at music And I started, and I hit that wall that women hit in their early 30s where they feel like, oh God, is that a gray hair? Oh my God, that's a wrinkle. And my body's changing. And also, do I want to have babies? Because if I want to have babies, I need to find my partner. And like, I went through that whole struggle. And, you know, when I was younger, I always thought I would have a ton of kids because I grew up in a big family 
And I realized like I helped raise my little sisters and my parents. And then I helped mm. raise my ex-husband. <laughs> so by the time I got You've a been di- a mom plenty of times. Yeah. Already. So yeah. Be, by the time I got a divorce, I realized now I'm gonna raise myself. It's my turn to yeah. be a kid. I get to finally be a kid and do what my kid self has always wanted to do, and that is make music. Mm. But when I did hit that point where I was like, I, I had like, I think maybe a year or two in my early 30s where I was still pursuing music, but I was really feeling discouraged about not knowing whether I was going to have kids. And I even went through like a breakup with somebody who I don't think was the right person for me anyway, but he was quite a bit younger than me. And um, it didn't seem like we should continue dating just because there's no way he was going to ever be ready to have kids uh, with, with me. So I think just at some point though, at some point as I kept being myself and doing what felt right to me, which was for me, continuing to make my art, that, that voice of feeling like I was too old just became so dumb. And I just started laughing at it because I was just like, that is like the biggest lie that anyone could ever buy, you know, like you're never too old to do what you love. Like never. Yeah. Like doing what you love has nothing to do with your age. And I mean, that message flies in the face of like our culture and, you know, I mean, it's just specifically for women. Like we're told that, our inherent value is connected to our outer beauty. And I mean, I think it takes a lot of courage to not listen to that message and to continue on your path and to continue to be yourself and do what you're supposed to be doing in the world, which is continuing to be who you are. And I think if you, I I think what we're all supposed to do as humans is just keep continuing who you are in the world and letting that unfold. And that is beautiful. Like letting the world get to see who you are always becoming. And I mean, I I think that's really, that's inspiring. And I, and I think it's really sad when a lot of people feel like, well, I'm too old. I'm too old to do this. Um, Because maybe older messages that we've been raised with were like, you know, all the famous artists are always like teeny boppers or whatever the message is like, but not all the great artists have been young. You know, there've been a lot of, there are a lot of older artists out there who've who continue to do their art and, and I, and I will, I will be one of those people. Yes. <laughs> there's, there's nothing else that um, I can do, nor is there anything else that I want to do 
So, well, I, I'm so grateful for you saying that. And, and we have, uh, one of our regulars on this show, her name's Lisa Congdon. She has a book called the glorious freedom and it's all about, um, women, uh, I think past 30 or past 40 who really start their journey to be whatever they, uh, end up being. She started her path to be an artist. She's, she's now one of the most respected, successful, super successful illustrators in my field. Um, and she got started on her path, I think around 40 and amazing. uh, Yeah. So so amazing. And so many of one of the biggest questions that we get for the show is, did I miss my chance? Am I too Mm. old? All those things Mm. that are just bound by so much toxic creative mythology is what I call it. And so I, yeah, Yeah. thanks so much for saying that because I think it really needs to be said. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think like the person who you are is always inside of you. And if you just say yes to that, like you will, you will automatically see like the universe agreeing with you and you will see doors open and it may not look exactly the way you think it should, but um, I think you just have to say yes to that creative being that's that's still inside of you I mean I just turned 40 in September and around the same time my record came out and um and I have to say like so far 40 is like this decade is like well minus this pandemic maybe (laughs) but (laughs) right (laughs) uh I mean even the pandemic I've I've found myself in a very magical situation somehow um, mm. but I, uh, 40 is like my best year so far. So yeah. I just want to say to anyone who's, who struggles with the, the whole age thing to just say yes to, to that creative being that is, is, is inside of you and has never left yeah. because once you start saying yes, it's going to, it'll start coming out of you and, and, and unfold in ways that will bring you so much joy and so much purpose to, um, to your journey, to your life. I feel like as many, you know, there was times where you're talking about your journey, where you're talking about, uh, from your perspective, missteps or, or times where you were saying no, but it seemed like all the way through, it's all working through the obstacles to let that person out. And so thank you so Mm -hmm. much for doing that. Thank you for putting it into art and putting it into this record. I can feel it. Every person (laughs) I share this record with, this is one of the, you know, this, I hope this is encouraging because even if it hasn't had some, you know, wildfire viral thing, every person that hears me listening to it will be like, "Mm, what's this? And and, and turn their head. Uh, So I, you know, it's just a matter of more people getting a taste of how you let that person out and into this record because um, it's so it's so apparent. So thank you. Thanks, Andy. Thanks for having me on this show. Seriously, thank you for so much time. This was absolutely brilliant. And I loved walking through everything that went into uh, making this record. Uh, it just means a ton to me. That means a ton to me too. You know, like I, it just, it's, it's very apparent that you are, very interested in in that process
huge shout out to uh, Jamie Drake for doing this episode. Uh, it has just been the best getting to know you, Jamie. And uh, I can't wait to collaborate on other stuff soon. Go check. You know what? You should check out this song. She did a uh, duet. She sang on this Justin Wade Tam song called Calm Yourself Down. It's really beautiful. And that song came out on March 13th, which was the day that things really kicked off with COVID in this country. And that uh, that song came out called Calm Yourself Down, and it felt like it was given to us from the gods. Um, and, uh, and yeah, it's just really beautiful. Go, go check her album out on Spotify. It is gorgeous. It has been our soundtrack for the past, I don't know, nine months or so. Um, Man, what a lovely human. What a super creative. And uh, I hope we get to have her on this show again sometime. Huge thanks to Yoni Wolf and the band Y for our theme music. Thanks to Alex Sugg for our soundtrack. Thanks to Jordan Aaron for editing the show. Thanks to Ryan Appleton for uh, managing my chaotic mess so that I can show up and do this stuff and and get sponsors and all that stuff. Um, Thanks to all of you for showing up. Until we speak again. Stay pepped up. Coward with my heart.